You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 18. Everybody's found their place, so I invite you to follow along as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, your sword, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your blessing as we seek to understand your word, as we seek to grow in uh, grace, as we seek to grow in Christ-likeness, as we seek to know you more, Father. We ask that you'd be pleased to bless us to these ends for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we continue uh, to study John's gospel, and we have now made it through what the church has historically called the Upper Room Discourse. And it's a lot, isn't it? Um, Chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. A lot of material, a lot of real estate of John's uh, gospel here devoted to these words, or to uh, to this event, if you will, and for good purpose, for good reason. And we've studied these things, and when we come to chapter 18, when we look at the very opening words there, we're told that when Jesus had spoken these words, now, what words exactly are in view? Narrowly speaking, I think we could say what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer, which would be John 17. Uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. But I think, broadly speaking, perhaps the entire uh, discourse that has taken place on this night, uh, which would be chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and to include 17. I don't think we can be sure. It's not that important uh, to understand our text. But notice that uh, Jesus went out. When Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1, he went out. Now, what exactly is going on there? Uh, He went out. Um, You recall that when we were studying chapter 14, and if you look back to chapter 14 and verse 31, the very last line there, it says, rise, let us go from here. Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. And I pointed out that some interpreters take it that they've left the upper room at that point. 
and that the rest of this discussion, including the prayer, happens somewhere between the upper room and the city limits of Jerusalem. We can't, again, be sure. And uh, as I uh, shared when we were in that place, sometimes when you have a group of folks and you announce it's time to leave to go to another uh, destination, it takes a little bit of time to do that. And that could be the case here, where Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. And as everybody's getting ready to leave, uh, further discussion takes place, including the prayer. It could all be done in the upper room, is my point. But when we get to chapter 18 and we see that he went out, it's important for us to understand at this point, Jesus and his disciples have left the city limits. They have now uh, left the city of Jerusalem. And we're given one other important detail here. They crossed the brook of Kidron or the valley of Kidron. Now, what's significant about that? There's a couple of things that are significant about that. And we don't need to turn to any of these passages, but in 2 Samuel, you have the story of uh, Absalom's rebellion against David. And, you know, Absalom, he had craftily and cunningly stole the hearts of Israel, and he uh, manages to get enough steam that he raises an army and he challenges his father's uh, leadership. And what does this mean? Well, this means when David hears about it, he realizes that he's got to get out of there. He's got to flee. In these ancient times like this, and even now in modern times in some countries, uh, for Absalom to be successful in his campaign, this would mean that David had to be killed. And you, you can only imagine, I mean, you know, this morning the devotion I did uh, down at the park was about family dysfunction, and I was doing it from Psalm 3, and the title of Psalm 3 makes a reference to when uh, Absalom rose up against David. When you think about family dysfunction, my goodness, do we have some family dysfunction going on here. Uh, David flees for not only his own life, but also the lives of his, the loved ones who are most devoted to him. And when David leaves Jerusalem, guess where he crosses? He goes through the Valley of Kidron, and he crosses this place, and he goes up the Mount of Olives. And he goes with his head down, weeping and uh, grieving, because the people of Israel have rose up against him and are seeking his life. Now, what's interesting, we see the parallel here. Jesus is, he is voluntarily crossing the same place as people are seeking to take his life. Just a couple other things that I think are helpful for us to know about this too is this particular valley was the place where King Asa, King Hezekiah, King Josiah dumped the idols that they gathered out of Jerusalem and elsewhere when they were attempting to reform the Holy Land. And they dumped those idols, and guess where? In the Valley of Kidron. And it is across this valley, if you will, that Jesus and his disciples make their way. And we're told at the end of verse 1, uh, there is a garden which he and his disciples entered. The idea that they entered the garden has led many people to believe that the garden was perhaps a gated garden or a walled garden, uh, probably owned by a wealthy landowner who was sympathetic to Jesus, perhaps a follower of Jesus, allowing Jesus to make frequent use of this garden. We know from verse 2 and we know from elsewhere, uh, Luke uh, 21, 22, we know that Jesus frequented this place. We're told in verse 2, Jude, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For, where, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
And we can see here that in God's providence, Jesus met there frequently, so Judas would know where to find him. And that's leading to one of the points I want to make. We have many lessons here from the rest of Jesus. And that's the title of this morning's message, is Lessons from an Arrest. And we get many lessons here. And one, as we're going to see here, is that Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control. He doesn't deviate. He purposely stays on his normal routine so that Judas can find him. That makes sense? He goes to the garden. Judas knows the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples, and they lodged there. Now, in verse 3, we're told that Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. There's a lot going on in this verse. And what we see is here Judas is leading this, this massive band of soldiers, if you will, and outstanding biblical interpreters, uh, they, they speculate, and their speculations vary from 200 uh, to 600 soldiers are being brought into this place carrying torches and lanterns and weapons, if you will. We don't know the number for sure, but it's a substantial amount. And we're told that they're carrying lanterns and torches and weapons. What's the purpose of all of this? We can sometimes lose uh, focus of just how dark it gets when there's no electricity. You know, a few years ago, Tammy and I stayed at a place called Dugspur, Virginia. Has anyone ever, you may have heard me talk about it. Uh, if you've heard me talk about it, and I'll ask if had you ever heard of it before we brought it up, and the answer is no. On the way down uh, to uh, that house, we spent a weekend there, and on the way down to that place, we stopped in the New River, if I recall, was at the New River Gorge, and we met a woman that was in her early 80s. We drummed up conversation with her. She was from Virginia, born and raised, lived in Virginia all her life. She wanted to, we told her we were going to Virginia. She wanted to know where. We said Dugspur, and she was like, I never heard of it. And when we got there, we understood why she had never heard of it. Uh, way out in the middle of the sticks, there was a farm nearby. There was another house nearby, but nothing else. And I mean to tell you, when it, nighttime fell, it was dark. I mean, it was really, really dark. Now, this is time of the Passover, so the moon is out. So you would have moonlight uh, going for you here. But if Jesus and his band uh, wanted to hide, they could have hid uh, in numerous places. And then there would have been a need for the torches and the lanterns. But we have to ask ourselves, why so many soldiers? And before we leave that point, notice there are, there's a band of soldiers and there's also officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. There's also quite a detail there because, you know, as we've, as we've studied the gospel and especially when we study the other gospels, you know, in the Bible study that I'm leading in the kitchen on Mondays, we've been studying Mark's gospel and there you run into the messianic secret. You know, Jesus will heal someone or perform a miracle and he tells everybody to be quiet. And why does he tell everybody to be quiet? He tells them to be quiet because their understanding of the coming of the Messiah was largely a political understanding. And Jesus didn't want to embrace that. He didn't want to get that out. And here, what do, they, what, do they, what do the ancient Jews want more than anything else? They want to be rid of Roman occupation. 
They want to be rid of the Romans. They want to be rid of all this. You know, you see it's politics, politics, politics all the way back then. Let's not think that that's an American 21st century thing. It's always been that way. And they want, they want more than anything, rid of the Romans. Yet in their pursuit to destroy Jesus, notice how they're in cahoots. The Romans and the Jews are in cahoots. And I don't bring this up. I'm not bringing this up to say that the, 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 to point necessarily at the Romans or to point to the Jews. What we have here is fallen humanities, fallen humanities hatred for Jesus. Why don't we believe in Jesus? We don't believe in Jesus because we don't want to believe in Jesus. Why don't we follow Jesus? We don't follow Jesus because we don't want to follow Jesus. Because the human heart, the fallen human heart in its unbelief, is bent towards rebellion against God, isn't it? And one of the things we're going to see here is just how stout, just how stout that rebellion is. It's one of the lessons we learn from this arrest. So here they are, they're in cahoots with people that they would, they would love to just be rid of, and they come into this garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. Why the weapons? There's 11 disciples. There's Jesus. Why the weapons? One, one reason would be a, a potential riot. And I think there's a detail here that we often forget about how loving God is and how caring God is. You know, Jesus leads this thing outside of the city into a garden so a riot doesn't erupt. A riot would have ultimately led to bloodshed, wouldn't it? And he brings this thing out into the garden. It's a detail I only think, you know, God is so good to us in ways that we don't even know and we don't even think about, but here's just one subtle way, which is huge. There would have been a lot of bloodshed. And he takes them out in the middle of this garden where no one's around and leads them out there so that there's no riot. But then again, we have to ask ourselves, why all the soldiers? Why all the soldiers? There's another reason. It's because they knew Jesus to be very powerful and influential. They knew that. Of course they knew that which also speaks to the fallenness of the human heart, doesn't it? You, know, you can think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the kingdoms plot in vain? It's exactly what we have happening here against the anointed. It's exactly what we have taking place here. So they come with weapons. Now, something that happens in verse 4 is just absolutely incredible and astounding. In verse 4, first of all, we're told Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. This is, this is such a burdening verse that it makes your knees weak to think about it. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He knew he would be mistreated. He knew he would have this, this trial that was hardly a trial at all. He knew he would suffer this humiliation and shame. He knew he'd be treated like the worst of criminals. He knew he would suffer the physical anguish of a cross. But what he knew most of all, of course, is that he would suffer the anguish of the wrath of God for the sins of everyone whom he has come to save. He carried that burden. He knew that was going to happen to him. One of the great blessings that we have is we don't know what the next day is going to bring into our lives. Sometimes we think we'd like that information, but what a blessing that we don't know. You know, would the deer that's about to be hit by a truck who's just grazing peacefully in the grass moments before, would it like to know it's about to get hit by a truck? Perhaps so it would avoid it, but if it couldn't be avoided, I don't think it would want to know that because it could have no peace, could it? 
We don't know what's coming around the next pike. There's a lot of comfort in our passage for that. We don't know what's coming around the pike, and that's a blessing, and we're going to get some comfort for that. But Jesus knew full well what is going to take place. That's another lesson we get from this arrest. He knew full well what would happen to him. And he comes forward and says to them, whom do you seek? Now, this is completely opposite of what you would expect. Here comes, at the minimum, I think we can say 200 soldiers carrying lanterns and weapons. They're seeking Jesus. They're expecting him to be hiding. They're expecting resistance. And what does Jesus do? He comes forward and he says, whom do you seek? Now, does Jesus need this information? No. He doesn't need this information. Can you imagine... Even if they knew what he looked like, who, who would expect Jesus to come forward and ask, who are you seeking? But that's exactly what he does. And this again embraces us. Jesus is in complete control of what is taking place in the garden, isn't he? He's in complete control. And they answer him in verse 5. They say to him, Jesus of Nazareth. This is who we're seeking. Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, if you have an ESV open, you'll notice there's a footnote after he, right? Do you all see it? Sometimes these footnotes, you just need to... (laughs) They're very small. But if you look down in the margin at the real fine print there, you'll see Greek, okay? I am also six and eight. What's that mean? That means in the Greek, he is not there. He is being supplied by the translator. The translator wants you to know they're supplying the pronoun he. So what this means is when, they ask, when Jesus asks them, who do you seek? They say Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says to them, I am. I am. Ego, eimi. The Greek word ego, we all know it. It's ego in English. I am. And you think of how powerful that is. And we've encountered that over and over again in John's gospel, haven't we? You know, you have the so-called seven I am sayings. You know, I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and et cetera. I am the uh, vine. You are the branches. We have all of these various I am sayings, and here Jesus is saying I am. And what is this pointing us back to? It's pointing us back to the great I am, the name that, that God gives Moses at the burning bush, isn't it? The great I am. They're in the presence of the great I am. And notice in verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And we can think of ourselves, what a great tragedy this is, because Judas, Judas was once one of the twelve. Think about the privilege of having been one of the twelve. Think about the privilege of being able to parade around with Jesus and see firsthand all these miracles and see firsthand the power of Jesus and see firsthand all the things that Jesus has done to hear Jesus preach. As I've said many times, you poor folks are stuck with me. Could you imagine hearing Jesus preach? What's Judas waiting for? A better sermon. That's not possible. Who's going to come along and preach a better sermon than Jesus? He heard all of that, yet we find him standing with them. And this recalls Psalm 1, I think. 
Think about Psalm 1. How does the Psalter start? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor what? Stand in the way of sinners. What is Judas doing? Standing in the way. He is standing with those who are seeking to destroy Jesus. And I think we got the time. Let's take a look at Hebrews. Turn back to Hebrews 6 that we looked at earlier. And I've, I've made this connection before, and I just want to do it again, because as we do this two, three, four, five times, it starts to enter into our hearts, and we, we really, this is helpful, because a lot of people will ask you, when they start studying their Bibles, they'll ask you about this passage. Hebrews 6, and you look at verse 4, I think all of us have struggled with this at one time or another. It's like, can I, you know... I'm in Christ today, you know, I'm, can, can, the, can the true person of God lose their salvation? That's the debate in the church. And here in verse 4, we're told it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And some of you remember um, in an earlier message, it's been a couple of months ago, I made the connection of Judas to this passage, that Judas is the textbook example of such a one who commits this crime. This is apostasy that's in view here. Judas has left. He, he, he was with the band of disciples. He was with Jesus. But he was never really with Jesus. Why? Think about the fruit that was in Judas's life. He stole from the money jar, didn't he? His, money was, his, his heart was truly on money, and that's what they got the best of him. His heart was never softened. His heart was still on worldly things. And if you look at verse 7 and 8, we often forget about verse 7 and 8 when we're trying to understand verses 4, 5, and 6, but 7 and 8, I think, are the key. For the land that has drunk, verse 7, the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing. Okay, it's fruitful because it's producing fruit that's useful, right? But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near, near to being cursed and its end is burned. This is the fruit that is in Judas's life. And someone might say, yeah, but what about being enlightened? And what about tasting the heavenly gift and sharing in the Holy Spirit? Judas was dispatched with the other 11 disciples. And he was empowered with the other 11 disciples to cast out demons and to preach and to heal. And by whose power would that take place? It would be by the power of the Holy Spirit, wouldn't it? And in terms of being enlightened, think about how many times Judas heard Jesus preach the gospel. John puts it very wisely. They went out from us because they never were of us. And these are warning passages. And Judas is it, certainly, Judas sounds a warning to us. Let us make application right here now. What kind of fruit are we bearing? 
Are we growing in our love for the Lord? Are we growing in our love for Christ? Are we growing in our love for the Father? Are we growing in our love for the Holy Spirit? Are we growing in love for one another? And I'm just pulling the categories out of John's first letter. Are we growing for love for one another? We can know that we've passed from death to life because we love who? We love the brothers, right? And the sisters. Adelphoi, brothers and sisters together. Are we growing in these things? Are we growing in our service to God? Are these things taking place? This is how we can know if we are in a state of grace or not. This is how we know. That's why whenever we depart, whenever we fall to the left or to the right, what is one of the first things that go? It's our assurance, isn't it? We start to wonder, where are we at? Because, well, and for good reason, where are we? And if we're walking through a period of time like that, what do we do? Lord, Lord, pull me back. Lord, help me. Help me, O oh Father. Lean on His strength. Call on Him. Call on Him to soften your heart. We think of David in Psalm 51. You can think of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Um, these are the things that we have to do. Now, back to our text, back to um, John 18. Notice, okay, they come into the garden in verse 4. Jesus asks them, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, this Jesus of Nazareth, is, uh, this has come up a few times. You know, uh, you, Nathaniel, all the way back in chapter 1, when um, uh, the disciples come to him and say, listen, you gotta, you got you to gotta come, uh, come and meet Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he say? Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? And this becomes a pejorative term, uh, if you will, in some context, Jesus of Nazareth. And in John chapter 7, they're all wondering. They're thinking, this may be the Christ, but the Christ comes from Bethlehem. He doesn't come from Nazareth. Some of you remember that detail. And, of course, we, you know, we know that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but he's raised in Nazareth, right? And they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Whom do you seek, says Jesus? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am. And verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Have you ever wondered about that verse? What's going on in that verse? I know I had wondered about that for a long, long time. And what I always thought was going on was Jesus right there. He says, I am. And what's going on is it's a, just a partial manifestation of his deity that they see. And they just fall backwards, you know. And that's probably where a lot of us are at. And it could indeed be part of that. But I think there's a better explanation than that. And for the explanation, keep your place in John 18 and turn to Isaiah 11, a really well-known passage. We see it a lot around Christmas time. Isaiah 11. Just turn back to the Old Testament. If you go to Psalms, you've gone too far. Isaiah 11. Jeremiah, you want to turn left. Turn right at the Psalms, turn left at Jeremiah. You'll get there. Isaiah is a big book. You'll find it. Isaiah 11, while you're turning, I'm going to read a few verses for context. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Speaking of the Messiah who is to come, Jesus is a descendant of David, a descendant of Jesse. 
Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, verse 4, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now look at the remaining part of verse 4. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. I think this is the best explanation we have for these soldiers falling backwards. What would cause these stout soldiers not to fall forward on their face in homage or adoration or worship, but to fall back is the breath of his mouth. And here he's just getting a little taste. He's giving them a little taste of just what do you, you guys need to be appraised of what you're doing here. Because I can put you all down with two words, I am. And you're on your shoulder blades. And you'd best be know who's really in charge here. Jesus is in complete and perfect control here. With the word of his mouth, he fells them. And that's a promise. When Jesus returns, he's going to fell all wickedness, including the man of lawlessness, with what? The breath of his mouth. And here we see the stubborn human fallen heart. After all of this, what do they do? They get back up. Jesus asks them again, whom do you seek? You want to think about this again? Whom do you seek? What do they say? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. I think it's easiest for us to read this as some kind of bargaining, almost like, you know, you see in the Cops and Robbers show of all descriptions. They're all the same show. It's just different characters, right? Movies, they're all the same movie. There's just different characters for the most part, right? Pretty much. And in the Cops and Robbers show, when you have the hostage situation, you know, or you have the hero, the hero comes in and says, oh, take my life, don't take theirs. And, and there's this bargaining with the bad guy, you know. Let's not read this into what Jesus is doing here. What is Jesus doing? He's already demonstrating and put them on their backs with two words. And he's saying to them, you take me, you leave them go. Is there any possibility that they could seize these 11 disciples? The answer is no. Jesus has protected them. In his high priestly prayer, he has told the Father, I have protected those whom you have given me. Not one has been lost except for the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And he asks the Father to protect them. Now, is there any chance at this juncture that they could be seized and taken? The answer is no. He's giving orders to this band. He is in control of what's happening here. Do you see that? You might have read this in the past as I have in the past and said that Jesus is pleading with them, take me, let them go. But that's not exactly what's happening here. He's ordering. It's an order. And we're told in verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Wouldn't have been possible. And there's a wonderful application here uh, for us. It's the way that the Lord protects his children. One of these days, these men will die at the hands of their persecutor. To my knowledge, John is the only one who lives to old age, and he's in exile in Patmos at the end of his age, right? The rest of them die at the hands of their persecutor. But not now, because their faith is weak. 
And God is protecting them. Jesus is protecting them. He's allowing them to see what needs to be seen. But he's protecting them as they see what needs to be seen. He's protecting them. He's nurturing them. He allows them to leave safely. And what's amazing is, while they're abandoning Jesus, they're going to abandon him. And while they're abandoning Jesus to save their own lives, Jesus is protecting them and loving them and preparing them. And we can make the same application of that in our own lives. <laughs> Think about the goodness of God right there. Sometimes, sometimes when we're abandoning God, when we're abandoning Him, and we abandon Him every time we sin, don't we? Everybody okay with that? Sin's rebellion. And what is God often doing? He permits us to do this so He can teach us and make us more like Jesus. we're thinking, Lord, why would you want anything to do with me? Look what I just did. He knew what we were going to do. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. God knows all that we're going to do to him. But look at the love that he displays on us. And it's this love, it's this love actually that motivates us to walk closer, isn't it? It's always this love that motivates us to walk closer. It's not the threat of judgment. It's the love that causes us to walk closer. Oh, how he loves you and me. I love that song. Just a simple song. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. Simple and beautiful, isn't it? We got more than that coming. There's more than that coming. It even gets more beautiful than that. But Jesus is committed, not one would be lost. Now, if you look at verse 10, Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And I'm going to save a lot of comments I could make right now about Peter, but I think we'll do that next time because we're going to be looking at Peter's denial, Lord willing, next week. But um, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. And we know from the other Gospels, from Luke, Jesus heals the servant's ear. Blood is shed, but Jesus immediately, Jesus immediately takes, it, takes it up and heals it, doesn't he? He heals him. And he says, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, I chose Psalm 75 this morning because it speaks of the cup of wrath, of God's wrath, that the wicked shall drink in the end. Nobody's getting away with anything. You know, if we, th if we think, you know, evildoers that think they're getting away with things in this life, they're doing everything in open view of God. And you know, we look at some of these leaders and we look at some of the people, not only in our own country, but all around the world, and you see many of them, they're in their approaching their 80s or in their 80s, and they're acting like God can't see what they're doing. You know, and you see that they, oh, they're just, you hear people one after another saying they're going to get away with it. They're going to get away with it. No, they're not going to get away with it. Unless they repent, they're not getting away with anything. I always think to myself as I watch these characters, I'm thinking, you know, in a very short period of time, you're going to have to give account to one who has watched you all your life. And the wicked are going to drink the cup of God's wrath. That's what's going to happen. But what is Jesus saying here? He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? 
Well, what cup is Jesus going to drink? He's going to drink the wrath that we deserve. How is it that we're going to escape this wrath? We're guilty as charged, just like the evildoers, aren't we? We have committed crimes against the Lord. How are we going to escape the wrath? Jesus is going to take it for us. He is going to drink it in our place. That's amazing love. But look at verse 12. The band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They bound him, assuming he's in these shackles. You know, Matthew Henry, whose uh, who's, uh, um, um, exposition of this verse is just exhilarating, by the way. Matthew Henry says that before Jesus is shackled with those bonds, he's already shackled with the bond of love. He's already shackled with the bond of love. And I'd like to add something to that. I think that we could look at these shackles that they put on Jesus as an emblem of his love for you and me. The sovereign creator of the universe who could fell every one of them with the word of his mouth has voluntarily allowed shackles to be put on him so he could be ushered out as the worst of criminals and drink the cup of wrath that we deserve so that we could be brought into a loving relationship with him. Amen? Lessons from the arrest of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we so thank you and praise you, Father, for your goodness, your love, your grace, your amazing, amazing, amazing um, grace that you shed here, O oh Father, for us. And as we look at these passages, and they're familiar, but as we look at them afresh, Father, you teach us new things from them. And, O oh Father, we see these great lessons that we get from uh, this particular passage of Scripture where we see you're in complete control, you're accomplishing the salvation that we are going to enjoy for all eternity. Truly, when we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days than in the hour in which we've begun. Oh, Father, we thank you for this, and we praise you for this, oh, Father. And, Lord, um, we, uh, we pray that, Lord, you'll work in our lives and work this love, oh, Father, into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.